If a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, then a stiff drink will help you get through an hour with us. Cheers, film fans, and welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Wednesday, January 16th, 2019, and we have a jam-packed show for you here today. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, the founder of our humble podcast. It is episode 27 of the SDFP, and today I'm joined today by Mr. Evan Dean, who is back from a, a brief one-show absence. How you feeling today, buddy? Good, man. It's the start of the new year. Um, things have been going well so far. 2019 is here. Really ramping up into awards season. How you doing so far in the new year? I'm feeling good, man. Things are about the same. I still watch way too many movies, sit around, uh, watch way too many shows, you know, need to get a little more exercise, the usual. Uh, we appreciate my buddy Mike Nichols, of course, filling in uh, last pod. Yeah, man. He uh, filled in nicely, I felt like. I listened in, and uh, you could tell he's a film geek, which is exactly what we want on the pod. Uh, hopefully, we can get him back on sometime soon. I'd love to have all three of us. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure that'll happen at some point here in 2019. Anyways, coming up on today's show, Dean and I will both be going uh, sort of rapid fire style. Uh, lots of flicks to get to this time of year. Lots of things we want to touch on, so we'll be sharing uh, spoiler-filled thoughts today on a whole lot of films that have been coming out. Let me say that one more time. Spoilers will come up in all of our reviews today. So if you want to come in fresh, don't want to have anything spoiled for you, uh, go back and watch the movie and then come back and check us out and let us know what you think about our thoughts. Uh, before I do that, we want to tell you ways to get in touch with us. So Dean, uh, spit spot! Tell us, tell the people how they can get in touch with us. Can you tell what we're going to review today? Has anybody gotten the uh, Mary Poppins hint? Uh, yeah, so we've got Facebook, uh, Twitter, we're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes. You can email us, secondayfilm at gmail.com. Um, we've got a whole bunch of ways to get in touch with us. And I say this every time. I say, if you could go on your Facebook, go to our page, and then invite all of your friends that would be awesome. Now I'm going to ask you to take it one step further. When you're out with a group of friends, maybe at a bar or something, grab your friend's phone, get on their Facebook, go to the Second Day <laughs> Film Podcast Facebook page, and invite all their friends. If you steal like one or two phones a week and invite <laughs> their entire group of friends, I mean, the numbers are bound to go up. Yeah. And we do have a, a wave of new uh, followers on Facebook, so I want to, of course, thank them for, yeah. for giving us a like. We appreciate it. Yeah. Uh Gave you a little shout out there on Facebook, and we we really do appreciate anyone who ever gives us a chance to do it. Don't get any fights if your phone if your friend doesn't want to give you his phone. It's okay to just you know take that as face value because we don't want any fights. That's true. Starting over the second yeah. day film podcast. Anyways, like I said, big show to get today. Lots to get to. And Evan, you mentioned it. I've been uh, sort of alluding to it here in our little open. Uh, the first movie we're going to talk about is Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, this movie is directed by Rob Marshall, stars Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins, also with Lin-Manuel Miranda, Ben Whishaw, Emily Mortimer, Julie Walters, Dick Van Dyke, Angela Lansbury, Colin Firth, and Meryl Streep. The plot summary on IMDb, decades after her original visit, the magical nanny returns to help the bank siblings and Michael's children through a difficult time in their lives. Uh, so as I said, this is a, or as that plot summary sort of said, this is the sequel to the 1964 classic starring Julie Andrews and a younger Dick Van Dyke. Uh, this movie takes place 20 or so years later uh, during the Great Depression. The first thing I want to say before I get to your thoughts, Evan, about this movie is I'm glad it's a sequel and not a remake. 
lately, Disney has been unveiling, you know, a lot of taking the, the classic cartoons and then transitioning them to live action. And a lot of those we're going to see coming out later this year. Some of them we've already seen. But there would be no point to make a remake to Mary Poppins. It already was sort of a mixture of live action and animation. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that this is actually a sequel. Um, I find the time gap between the actual time gap in the setting of Mary Poppins is only 20 years, but the actual setting when they're review when they're releasing the the sequel is like a lot more. Yeah, you know, 54 80, 50, years. It's, it's more, so I find yeah. that interesting. Um, so I'm glad they're at least going for the sequel. Um, I must say right off the bat, though, it's really more of just like a slightly altered remake. Uh, it, it's 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 more of like an altered remake. I mean, every plot point has a companion to the original, um, you know, up movie. Everything is is sort of like in the same flow and the same structure. Um, and I'll get into that in a little bit. So those are my just brief start thoughts here. But uh, tell us about your experience with Mary Poppins. Have you seen the first one? And what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the sequel? Yeah, we've talked about a number of epic, legendary films that I've not seen. You can add the original Mary Poppins to the list. Blasphemy. I know. I actually went and saw this over the Christmas holiday with my wife and her parents, all three of them big Mary Poppins fans, so I didn't really get a chance to uh, see the original. It was an impromptu trip to the the theater uh, downstate, so I just decided to go. And, of course, I've seen clips. I've heard the legend of Mary Poppins. I know Julie Andrews is kind of had a, a legendary role. And I guess the first thing that I'd like to say is is from everything I know and everything I've heard about Mary Poppins and the character... Uh, Emily Blunt kind of embodied that. I thought that uh, she did a great job as Mary Poppins. It's obviously a huge role to fill when you're going to um, be the second person to take on that role this many years later. You know, she's stern but also loving, and throughout the course of the film, she's constantly sharing lessons with the kids. And I really thought that her performance was spot on. Yeah, I mean, Emily Blunt is clearly channeling Julie Andrews in this. You can, If you've seen the first one, you can see she's doing the same thing. And I said this years ago when they announced the casting of Emily Blunt. It's not, like, it's just perfect. I don't know yeah. if you could get a more perfect casting. So uh, Tony Stark uh, as Robert Downey Jr. Yep. Came Sometimes it's just like a character in a marriage that just fits so well. She's clearly channeling it. And beyond... Emily Blunt, who is clearly really embodying the Mary's Poppins character, I appreciated that this movie is made in the spirit of the original Mary Poppins. We just mentioned there's a huge time gap between when this the original came out and when the sequel came out, but this movie is colorful. It's made in the style that would have so it mar it marries well to the original Mary Poppins. You know, it, it feels like the songs could have been released in 1960, which is great because I think it's sort of recreating. Uh, a very favorable memory that a whole new generation can have with with Mary Poppins. You know, now their parents can see the original, yeah. and their kids can see have the same sort of experience. So I really appreciated how this movie was really made in the spirit of what Mary Poppins is. They didn't try and go in some crazy new direction. Yeah, and of course, it doesn't say it on IMDb, but this is a musical. I mean, there are songs scattered throughout the entire um, film. One thing that was interesting I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if... They were 100% right, but I'm going to assume they were. Ash's parents said, you know, I was surprised they didn't bring back any songs to kind of reprise any of the original songs. And they were all new songs, as I understand. Yeah, they were, for sure. I mean, I, I mentioned how there's this sort of movie. It literally is almost like a retread of the original. And I don't mean that as a knock. It's just kind of like a point. Like, And, and they do that through the songs. The first song is the Spoonful of Sugar song in the original one. They go on this adventure in the bathtub this time. You know, there, there's parts in the original they jump in 
into a chalk art painting, and that's where the animation sequence comes from. In this one, they're on a bowl. You know, they go see the topsy-turvy ant. That mm-hmm. is the floating uncle in the original. You know, at the I end, see. there's a there's a, a kite song. The kite comes into play in this movie, but there's a kite song at the end of the first one. At the end of this one, it's balloons. So they sort of hmm. used songs to sort of pair them throughout the plot of the movie, and it's sort of similar but different. You know, it did... So that was, I don't know if it's a knock, but it's just kind of like seems maybe a little bit like safe to just sort of follow the original, you know, basically blueprint. I will say this movie diverges a little bit in the third act. It becomes sort of its own original thing. Um, So I appreciated that because the whole time I was sitting there and I was just like, this is great and entertaining and colorful and fun, but it literally feels like I'm watching just a kind of different Hmm. Uh, version of the first one well yeah and i mean look ashley's parents they even said you know hey we might have kind of wanted one of those old songs brought back but it sounds like um you know at least you're saying that they were all kind of parallel to a song or a theme or a scene Mm -hmm. from the original not the same just a little bit different Uh, one thing i did want to talk about my favorite scene in the entire film was when they go inside the cracked bowl Mm -hmm. and i i know just from being a, a film geek that that was a, a massive achievement in the original, having live action characters in an animated scene. And I thought that was awesome in yeah. this, you know. Super fun. It was. It was awesome. Just the way that it, it worked and how it flowed. And you have these animals that are animated and you've got the kids and Mary Poppins. Super, um, it it, it, it helps cool. that you have talented performers like... Emily Blunt, who is joined by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, of course, is known for his, you know, Broadway connections and being able to... He brings a good presence to this movie that feels sort of like... He plays the same role that Dick Van Dyke played in the original, and it... it, He helps to bring a lot of energy. Yeah. And, obviously, Emily Blunt... I mean, that scene, if you think about it, it's just them dancing. It'd be them by themselves, but with a green screen and a bunch of... I mean, they don't have the penguins and everything around them oh, to, yeah. to act off of. So it just, really just tells you how talented these people are that make these movies. It would, it'd be a fun behind-the-scenes film, which you know there will be plenty of that when they release the DVD and the Blu-ray. And you just get to see how different it was while they made it mm-hmm. uh, versus what it actually looks like. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, I love, uh, I mentioned how this, you know, you're, you've sort of talked about connections and maybe Ash, or your fiance's parents or wife's parents wanting more of connections. I do think there was some clever nods to the original, which I appreciated because they were sort of subtle. They were, they were like, uh, they weren't like forced. Like we talked about Solo, the Han Solo movie where it does this a lot, where there's winks at the audience or uh, even the new Harry Potter where they force them in there, they force feed them to you. This movie does this better. It just gives little nods and makes them, folds them into the actual plot and script of the story. You know, the kite I mentioned, that's a huge thing in the first one. Yeah. And it plays a huge factor in this, in the actual plot and how the movie resolves itself. A kite, of course, is a symbol of childhood. And at the beginning, Michael, who was the young kid in the first one, is now grown up. He tries to throw it out because he finds no value in childish things and, you know, things from his past. You know, one of his kids finds it and patches it back together. So it ends up being the one thing he actually needs, which is to get in touch with his childhood. So I love the symbolism of of including the kite. You know, uh, they, they... play up the Big Ben with the Admiral. That's a big thing in the first one, and they sort of bring that and integrate it into the plot seamlessly. And these are... So I appreciated how easily they did that. It didn't feel forced or like they're throwing it in there just for shits and gigs. Yeah, and obviously having not seen the first one, I I didn't draw as many comparisons nearly as you were able to. One thing I did want to talk about a little bit, though, is... So my theater, the theater we went to, was like... It honestly seemed, and I know it wasn't, but it seemed like it was 80% children. And 
Um, this was an interesting film in terms of I, I always go into Disney movies and kind of keep tabs on how much does this seem or like you know that it's that it's the story is for kids, mm-hmm. but it also appeals appeals to adults because they usually do a pretty good job of that. I thought this film was really at least to me it seemed like it was geared towards kids mm-hmm. maybe more so than some other um more adult themes that some of the other disney films have given adults that kids maybe don't see i will say the one thing is is there is a serious theme about loss about the kids losing their mom a dead mom of course that's a disney thing we can only have single parents yeah, in disney of course films. um but but i did like that and i liked the the what mary poppins the lesson she brought it's a story about loss and about how you remember those you've lost, the things you've lost, the people you've lost, how you hold them with you as you move forward. And for kids, I, I you know, I, even though I thought it was a kids-geared movie, that is a pretty serious theme. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I think it, the movie at its core is about being a kid, you know, yeah. and holding on to those things that are fun about being a kid. Because even at the beginning of the movie, the kids have dealt with the loss of their mom, and they're like grown-ups. They're like little kids, but they behave as grown-ups, caring for their little butt, little brother in a lot of ways, yeah. because their dad has forced them to be that way. You know, so I think the loss of child and loss of innocence is a big thing they talk about here. Um, but that Mary Poppins' purpose—that's her purpose. She comes in when when the family needs her to save her. You know, uh, there's a line when she's like, "I'm here for the Banks kids, of course," and he's like, "Well, they they're just fine." And he's like, "Well, yeah, all them too." You know, because she's talking about the dad, yeah. not him. You yeah. know, so Mary Poppins—that's her job to swoop in, help mend things, show people in the right direction, shine some light. And you'll notice you didn't at the end of this movie, she sort of fades to the background. It's about the family, yeah. and then she gets up and flies away. And that's the same thing in the first one because the point is for her to come in, put the necessary pieces on the puzzle board and then back out to the back as the family figures out what truly matters and i think so i think that's really they did that well we'll say that so anyways uh one more thing just right before we move on um you got dick van dyke shows up at the end (laughs) yeah everyone's talking about it and did you notice in the uh opening credits he was there was a credit nav kid keyed Dick Van Dyke was credited as Navkid Keed uh, because they don't want to give away. Clever. Yeah, yeah I, didn't, I did give... not notice that. Yeah, so that's kind of funny. And he's playing the father of the role that he played in the original. He put on makeup and uh, played an old guy in the original, young Dick Van Dyke. And now he actually is old and doesn't need makeup. It's actually <laughs> quite remarkable how alike he looks. So, um, Mary Poppins. What did your what would you give it? What yeah, you look, obviously, I uh, I don't have as much to say about it. I don't have comparisons I can draw like you can, but I, I liked it for what it was without having that background. I thought it was a good movie. Um, I gave it a seven out of ten. Okay, I, I think I liked it more than you. Maybe that's just because I have that background. Yeah. Maybe I just have more fond memories with Mary Poppins, but it's just so fun to watch. The mm-hmm. music is great. It's colorful. It looks great. The set pieces are fun. The movie looks amazing. I think it really has some strong messages that parents and kids can share with each other. Um, so practically perfect in every way. Not quite, but it's pretty damn good. Uh, I gave it an 8.5 out of 10, and it's up there on my top uh, films list. So I'm not going to give away exactly where it is because I okay. plan to do a show pretty soon. But uh Uh, Go see Mary Poppins Returns. Well, you know, we usually do uh, IMDb, you know, one number, but with you having a list, you're going to have to probably use some decimals here, huh? Yeah, and it's sort of like a mental decimal system. (laughs) uh, You know, usually when I give it, I'm like, am I going to bump it to a nine or an eight? This would be a strong eight and a half. It'd be up there for sure. So uh, that's Mary Poppins Returns. It's in theaters right now. Go check it out.
All right, buzzing on along here on the Second Day Film Podcast. Uh, the next movie we're going to talk about here is Bumblebee. Uh, this is by director Travis Knight. It stars Haley Steinfeld, John Cena, Jorge Landenberg Jr., John Ortiz, Jason Drucker, Pamela Adlon, Dylan O'Brien, Angela Bassett, Justin Theroux, and Peter Cullen are in voice roles of this movie. Uh, this is the sixth installment of the live-action Transformers series uh, in a pre- prequel to 2007's Transformers. Wait, it wasn't directed by Mr. Explosions himself? It, it was not. Transformers, of course, is a series uh, largely headed by Mr. Michael Bay. Uh, it's also a series that has been largely panned by critics. Uh, you know, it's sort of accused of being a big, loud, dumb CGI mess that sort of exploits hot chicks and perpetuates idiocy. Uh, for the yeah. most part, I won't disagree with that narrative. Uh, although I will say I do, I did quite like the first Transformers. I thought it was an entertaining and fun movie, and it was cool to see the toys come to life on the big screen. Uh, the sequels have largely been garbage, so we'll pretend like uh, they don't really exist. Although I must say, this movie Bumblebee, I liked it quite a bit. It, it has a good heart to it, which I think is something that all the other Transformers movies have been missing. Uh, it really gets to the core of the relationship that Bumblebee has with Charlie, the main character played by Haley Steinfeld. Uh, she's a character who's lost her dad. She's misunderstood. She's in a rut. Uh, and Bumblebee... Uh, is lost from his planet and suffering from amnesia. And they sort of come and meet each other right at the same time. And because they find each other, they or because they find each other, they end up finding themselves. And I think that there's such a big heart and core, even though it's between a teenage girl and a big CGI machine, you really feel their connection in this. And I think similarly to how Sam is, played by Shia LaBeouf in the first Transformers with Bumblebee, it, it sort of works on that level. So I think to start, this movie actually has some feels behind it, and that's why I think it's better for the most part. But what's your experience with the Transformers series? Have you seen a lot of them? Uh, you know, I remember seeing at least the first two, um, and I, I don't think I saw Dark of the Moon or anything after that, um, but there was a reason I avoided them is because I think the first sequel was terrible. Um, what's interesting, though, is, is the first thing I noticed when you started off here was you know, it stars Haley Steinfeld, oh. someone of much greater acting acumen than somebody like Megan Fox or even Shia LaBeouf, for that matter. And I just remember the the I kind of alluded to it when teasing Michael Bay. You know, the other movies just get, were an excuse to have cool CGI and explosions mm-hmm. and cool special effects and no heart, which you said is the difference here. Yeah, I mean, there's action in this movie, of course. They're fine. The set pieces are fine. I don't think they're anything special. You know, it's still kind of a CGI mess. Um, But, uh, you know, I do think the difference is that you actually care about Bumblebee. It's not just an endless parade of nameless robots destroying cities and destroying each other. You know, Bumblebee is fighting the whole time, and you actually know Bumblebee, and you care about him as a character. Um, This movie has a lot of nostalgia in it, which I think is awesome for a toy in a franchise that was largely the most popular in the 80s and 90s. You know, this movie is set in the 1980s, um, so that's portrayed through the soundtrack, through the look of the movie. It's kind of grainy and darker colors, and uh, the costumes, what the characters are wearing. They're wearing these old-school band shirts and whatnot. You know, there's cassettes and everything everywhere. There's old-school computers. You know, it really helps to set this movie apart from sort of the hyper-technical 
electronic mess that the rest yeah. of the franchise is. This one feels more grounded and within the real realm. So I think that also helps set it apart. It's just sort of like a whole new direction for the series, which is good considering it, the, the, at least the last three have been trash. Like I, that's, I have no other way to put it. They're just bad movies. It's literally just CGI. It's for idiots. Yeah. It's for people who want to see explosions. You know, <laughs> uh, there's some, there's some smart or there's some uh, childish comedy in this. I don't think the comedy worked great. That's one of my knocks on it. You know, it didn't really work for me. They try and play the fish out of water that Bumblebee is, and they try and play that out by him just being like, "What's going on here? What's going on here?" You know, oh, let's, what, I'll touch this and mess it up. You know, I, I didn't think it really worked. It was kind of juvenile for me. I thought. Um, Haley Steinfeld, you mentioned her. I don't know that she's a bigger star than Shia LaBeouf was when he does it. I think they're actually quite comparable, although Haley Steinfeld, of course, can sing, too. And we've seen her in things like Edge of Seventeen. Uh, she did the voice for Spider-Gwen and Into the Spider-Verse that just came out. Clearly very talented. I mean, she's True gonna, grit. Yeah, true grit. Yeah, when she was young. So, But Shia LaBeouf has been in a lot of smaller indie films that maybe you haven't seen. And he's really showed off more yeah. his his acting skill since That's Transformers. That's fair, you know, since even Stevens. Right, yeah. So, um, but but Haley Steinfeld is, is an absolute star. I mean, she's going to have multiple Academy Award nominations sooner rather than later. Uh, she's really coming up. And you saw her talents in this. She, she helps, you know, she, like we said with um, Mary Poppins Returns, she's working with nothing most of the time probably a stick with a robot head on it so uh it's it, it's i think you really need to take that account into account when you're watching her act in this so she was really good um it's not a great movie it's it's a transformers but as the transformers go i would put it first or second best for sure uh i gave it a solid seven out of ten okay all right well hey um you remember when we had a poll, like, I don't know, months and months and months ago? February? <laughs> I don't know, last February, last I mean, March? I think it was a little bit uh, a little bit more recently than that, but uh, I happened upon this on Amazon Prime, and it was a movie that was on a poll and never generated any traction, and it's Strangers 2, Pray at Night. Were you the only one who voted for it on the poll, Ivan? I didn't vote for it. No, there were, there were much better options. And uh, better options in February, <laughs> which is not saying. I know much. you're 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 reviewing things that are right in theaters now, and I'm going back to an early 2018 film. March but anyway, 9th was when it, anyway, March 9th was when it give was me a, my time. Okay, here. I'm you sorry. Know, Go we've, ahead. Got, we've got some horror fans around here. Hashtag no genre bias. There's nothing good in theaters right now, anyways. No, nothing. <laughs> no, nothing worth an Academy Award. I mean, we've got Strangers Pray at Night, and it's more important. So this uh, was released, as Champ said, in, in March, and uh, it's directed by Johannes Roberts, and uh, it stars Christina Hendricks, Martin Henderson, Bailey Madison, Lewis Pullman. Uh, those are your main four characters, and I didn't recognize... You forgot Man in the Mask, Dollface, and Pinup. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, those are the real stars of this film. Um, but the plot summary on IMDb, a family of four staying at a secluded mobile home park for the night are stalked and then hunted by three masked psychopaths. Two women and one man, and Champ already gave you the name, so I won't do it again. Uh, so... I've got to start this review by reminding everybody in a previous pod, the original Strangers was number three on my favorite horror films after 2000. It was right up there. It was a great movie. And I have to talk about that a little bit before I talk about this. Um, you know, in that movie, there was very little plot, but the director did such a great job 
in creating suspense, the use of sound, the use of camera angles, specific shots. And most of all, what was so great about the original Strangers is it was a slow build. It, it was I mean, halfway through the film before the the uh, villains, if you will, the killers, even really started pursuing the victims, the, which, was, uh, which was a boyfriend and girlfriend in the original film, um, Scott Speedman and Liv Tyler. Um, and, and, I, and I really liked the first one. This one, for being a direct sequel, is so much different and not in a good way. So a character development. They didn't do much of it in the first, and it worked. This time, it seems like they intentionally spent a little more time letting us learn about these characters. That wasn't a good thing, because the acting in this is bad, really bad. The two parents are like horny teenagers who want their kids out of the house so they can have it to themselves. They actually look more like older siblings than actual parents. It was quite jarring yeah. uh there's the stereotypical athlete son and then the bad girl daughter who's always in trouble get this she's wearing all black and a ramones shirt very cliche and the problem with all this is over the first 15 minutes when they're doing this if your characters aren't likable you're not as symp sympathetic when they start getting attacked by people wielding knives um you know during the film they visit a family in a trailer park the entire film takes place in this trailer park at night. And aside from like two or three people who were killed when the family shows up, there is no one there. I'm wondering the whole time, like, where is everybody in this trailer park? There's nobody. Um, and I talked about the slow build from the first one. You know, in this one, the, the killers, are, you know, they're totally inconsistent. Right out the gate, as soon as the family shows up, they start at it. They don't taunt them. They don't haunt them. They just start getting to them and trying to kill them right out the gate. That's totally inconsistent from the first one. There were, of course, horrible, horrible horror movie cliches. Uh, you know, let's move toward a loud, scary thump. Let's return to the scene of a gruesome murder. Let's scream loudly while we're trying not to give away where we are. Not killing the killers when they have a chance. One of them has got a gun to their face and doesn't kill them. So... So it's, it's, it's pretty rough. There's also, you know, the cliched sentimental family moments during the few mo moments when they aren't under siege. I know you saw this movie. I've got a little bit more to say about what I think it was trying to do as opposed to the first one. What did you think about this? Um, I thought it was pretty forgettable. I saw it back in March. I, it's, I mean, a lot of times, more times than not, most of the time, horror movie sequels just don't work because when you, when you, do get a good horror movie, like The Strangers, it's because you did everything perfect. You struck the perfect mood, you struck the perfect chord, and it just worked. And at times, the more you try and do that, and recreate the magic, so to speak, it doesn't work. So, first of all, why are they going to a trailer park for a family <laughs> vacation? That sounds awful. I know that she's like off, heading off to boarding school, yeah. and it's like, hey, one last hurrah, let's go to your uncle's trailer park that nobody hangs out with. They have a couple swings. <laughs> Just yeah. bad. Yeah, no, I, I gave agree. It a, I gave it a 5 out of 10, and, and I thought that was generous. I've got a few more things to say very briefly. So, in short, the film's clearly and intentionally straying away from the first. It's more of an ode to slasher flicks of the 80s. Some specific examples. Title cards. They reminded me of Stranger Things, which, of course, reminds me of the 80s. Uh, there's a nod to kind of like the invincibility of Jason and Michael Myers. Spoiler warning here. One of the killers, he's inside his truck, it explodes, is set on fire, yet he still manages to drive it, then gets out of the truck and chases down the family. 
a lot of 80s music in it. Uh, some of some of that's okay. The two things I did like is there's a pool scene that's pretty good. It seemed original. And the fact that this time the victims actually fight back. So all that said... I, I did like that pool scene. And I did think there was some good cinematography with sort yeah. of the darkness and the mist and how the they made silhouettes the... Yeah, and how the they kids. made the trailer park look creepy. So I do think... From a from a technical filming standpoint, they did some things right, but the story in the script is an absolute mess. Yeah, it's it's only an hour and eighteen minute film, so you're not wasting a lot of time. But I'm gonna go ahead and say you can spend that seventy eight minutes elsewhere. I give it a four out of ten. So that's the Strangers uh, Pray at Night. It's a sequel to The Strangers. Um, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Uh, you can get it on DVD, probably digital download. Amazon and, Prime. Amazon where I saw. Prime. Anywhere you can uh, watch movies. That's The Strangers. Pray at night. All right, moving right along, we've had two big blockbusters. We've had a horror film. A uh, lot we're getting to on yeah. today's show. Uh, the last two movies that I'm going to review uh, are both uh, uh, quote-unquote Oscar contenders. They come out late in the year. Uh, and the first one is The Favorite. This movie is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who is a Greek director. Uh, this movie stars... Uh, among other people, Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, Nicholas Holt, Joe Alwyn, James Smith, and Mark Gaddis. Um, the plot summary on IMDb. In early 18th century England, a frail Queen Anne occupies the throne, and her close friend, Lady Sarah, governs the country in her stead. When a new servant, Abigail, arrives, her charm endears her to Sarah. Um, Yorgos Lanthimos if you know anything about movies, uh, is the same director uh, of recent films The Lobster and The Killing of the Sacred Deer. Uh, so if you've seen those movies, you know how freaking stylish and or weird this dude's movies are. Yeah. Uh, this one is no different. It's super stylish. It's very specific in mood and feel and tone to the kind of movies he makes. And it's, and, um, it's just like quirky, off the wall, dark in a lot of ways. Um... Although I will say, of the three movies that I've seen, I've seen The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer, um, I think this is his most viewer-friendly movie. And what I mean by that is it's sort of the easiest for like a casual film fan to digest. It's, um, it isn't gruesome or so dark or out there that like it, you can that a non-film nerd would just be like, "What the hell is this?" You know, it's still it's still like stylish. And it's very artsy, um, and it's still wacky AF. Um, but it, but it's a movie that you know the the casual person could consume without being like, what is going on here? Um, it's buoyed by three incredible performances by three amazing actresses. Uh, they were all nominated for Golden Globes. Olivia Coleman, who uh, won it, she plays Queen Anne. Emma Stone and Rachel Wise, as I've said, uh, the interplay between them is fantastic. They're constantly jousting and sort of trading verbal jabs as they sort of, especially between Stone and Wise, as they sort of battle for the affection of this queen. Uh, it's just so cool to see these very capable, incredible actresses just sort of bounce off each other. You know, the film is called The Favorite, but it does a great job of not picking favorites. It it sort of shows the duality of humans and their flaws and the good and bad of both sides and their cunning and how every person is an individual human. So, um... The relationships between those three is sort of what drives the movie. Have you heard of this very much at all, The Favorite? I hadn't heard of it until you told me you were going to see it. Uh, obviously, this director is is totally off the wall. You and I went to see The Killing of a Sacred Deer 
was cheering this wasn't year. It? it was awful. It was unsettling. <laughs> and no, the movie wasn't awful, but the you did, you thought that movie was awful, poorly I, I, made. No, no, no. I didn't think it was poorly made. I thought I didn't enjoy it. Yet I thought it did a good job in accomplishing what it was trying to. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's not a movie that I'm going to recommend, but or really liked. But yeah, but it, but he was clear what the director was trying to do, and he accomplished that. I mean, he uses, he's clearly one of those auteur type authors who has a very specific style. He's trying to convey a very specific mood. He wants you to know that you're watching his movie when you tune in. I mean, The Lobster is a movie about a a distant dystopian future where if you don't find a mate, you turn into an animal. I mean, (laughs) like, this is how off the wall and weird this guy is. Uh, Just real quick, when I was in, in school, we both went to CMU, Cinema Study Minors, I had a David Lynch film class, so I, I I've been around those kind of directors who go for this. But you're saying this one's a little bit more grounded. I think it is. Yeah, it's a little bit more, um, you know, consumable. You know, th- this movie looks great. It's filmed at Hatfield House in Hampton Court Palace in England. Um, but Yorgos, as he usually does, he uses light and angles to portray mood. Um, he does it constantly in this. Of course, this is the early 1700s we're talking about. So when it's dark, it's dark. All you have is a fire or candlelight. And he really uses that to his advantage in this movie to sort of portray mood as the characters are walking through these massive hallways or protruding through these gardens and there's torches everywhere. I mean, the, the, the mood of this really helps to sort of set the movie apart, I think. The music is great. Uh, it's sort of this orchestral string instruments are used most of the time. Uh, if you remember in Killing of a Sacred Deer, the, the, the music was almost haunting in a way like the credits rolled up and we were just like get me the hell out of this theater (laughs) in this way it's sort of like that but it's with an orchestra but it's still almost like haunting in a way it's kind of weird because this movie largely is a comedy um but it's also a drama dealing with serious subject matter so it's just a wacky off the wall movie i wasn't thrilled with how it ended the last scene was a little bit too out there i thought it was a little bit too abstract uh for a movie that for the most part was for sort of like the common person so um it's wacky. It's it's not for everyone, I would say. Yorgos, I mean, if you've seen some of his other movies, you will, you know, know kind of what you're in for. Um, that being said, the acting is amazing. It looks amazing. I expect all three to be nominated for Academy Awards. Uh, I give it an 8 out of 10. All right. Well, while you're busy watching films that are going to be receiving a number of Oscar noms, I'm busy watching movies that are going to be on TNT in six months. Um, so and the film that I just saw uh, just hit theaters uh, at the turn of the new year. Uh, it's called Escape Room. So this movie is directed by Adam Robitel, and it isn't starring anybody that I've ever seen in any other film before. Taylor Russell, Logan Miller, Jay Ellis, Tyler Labine, Deborah Ann Wool, and Nick Dodani. Deborah Ann Wool from Daredevil fame. Okay, there you go. Those are your six main uh, characters, actors, and actresses in this. And... And this is a pretty big release, actually. It's, it's actually got a re- really wide release. The plot summary from IMDb. Six strangers find themselves in circumstances beyond their control and must use their wits to survive. I'll go a little bit further than that. It's called Escape Room. It's actually about six characters uh, with different backgrounds, different lifestyles, who are given the chance to win ten grand by successfully making it out of an escape room. And when they actually get into it, they realize that it's not a game, but there's actually life and death at stake, and, and the rooms can kill them. Hmm. Um, Sounds so, like Saw 2. 
You know what? You're you're transitioning so perfectly to what I have to say in my review. You know I'm a sucker for mystery thrillers. This has been well established on the pod. And, as you alluded, the concept here, it's kind of a mishmash of some of my favorite horror thriller flicks. Cube, Saw, Cabin in the Woods, maybe even The Game, which I know you saw recently. Uh, it's kind of taking all of those ideas and throwing them in, in, in you know into one. Uh, it's totally toned down, though. It is a PG-13 film, so whereas some of those movies that were more original and better... So, obviously, it pulls from all of those different films, but this was a totally toned-down version. Much less gore and, quite frankly, much worse than some of those other films. Uh, this is PG-13, so a little more friendly for the kids, perhaps. So I'm going to start with what I did like. Uh, first off, I think getting taken from room to room and seeing kind of how these characters had to escape, that in general was a lot of fun. It created a lot of suspense. I mean, look, these escape rooms are becoming wildly popular. People are, they're popping up everywhere. There's a couple of them in Grand Rapids where you and I live, and people like doing these things. Uh, the theme of each room here is interesting, and as we later find out, not random at all. The acting was fine. As with any horror movie, not a whole lot of acting is really required. The movie kind of hits out a bunch of different character cliches that you often see in these, quote, random group of strangers having to escape a bad situation, end quote, type of movie. And that's really become more and more popular since the Saw franchise was booted. I didn't uh, hate the movie, but there's more to say about what I didn't like. Um, first off, as I alluded to in the beginning of the review, it's just not original at all. You know, you 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 came up with Saw 2 right out the gate. It, it is a toned down Saw 2 in a way. It pulls these, you know, pieces from a variety of different movies and throws them together. And one thing that was really disappointing for me is with a film based on escape rooms, to some degree, you would expect the characters to use logic and how they have to, you know, solve these rooms and escape and move on from room to room because they have to go through like five or six of them. It does not happen here. There are really obvious decisions that they miss. Very little logic used at times. It's never addressed in the film. And I think the audience is left wondering, like, why the hell didn't they do that? And for a movie about escape rooms, you would expect them to, to kind of cover their bases for really obvious ways to solve problems, and they didn't. You haven't seen this yet. I know you've been spending time with watching more notable films. No, I have not seen Escape Room. I've not seen a trailer, uh, like Evan said. I'm, I've, it's, it would be way down on the watch list right now. I'll probably throw it on the DVD queue because the premise sounds somewhat interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, not something I'm going to go see in theaters anytime soon. I've got a few more things just to touch on. The twist, which I won't give away, it's ridiculous. I'll just say it's a reveal on how the characters are connected, and it's way out there, too out there. Uh, the ending, I'll just say it should have ended sooner. And this is an interesting theme here with these films. You know, this film, they go a bit further in explaining what happened than maybe they should have. So let's talk about the, the films I referenced. Cube, totally ambiguous ending. It worked well. Then they started explaining it in the sequels, and it killed that film franchise. Even Saw, the first one was totally open-ended. Though I did think that franchise did a better job creating a storyline afterwards. Made a ton of money. Uh, but I kind of struggle with these types of endings, you know? Like, I, I want to know of, more, of course, about what happens 
you know, but yet typically that kind of makes the movie worse. Do you ever find yourself? Yeah, I mean, we talked we talked about it in the last spot with Bird Box a little bit. I mean, we've said it. I feel like it comes up every episode. Less is more a lot yeah. of times. It sounds like an interesting movie. Like I said, the, the premise. It also sounds like a movie that maybe the premise was spoiled a little bit, where it had a good idea yeah. and just doesn't really quite deliver. What would you give it out of ten? Yeah, all that said, I did enjoy the film in general. It's not trying to do anything new. But I think that's okay. It's just trying to capitalize on the popularity of escape rooms right now. For a fan of mysteries and thrillers, I gave it a 6 out of 10. All right, so that is Escape Room. It's in theaters right now. Uh, Go check it out if you want to be scared. Or you could go watch something like I'm about to talk without even leaving your living room. Uh, It's Roma, which, of course, is another one of the sort of heralded movies coming out this time of year. Um, It's directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who is known for Gravity, uh, several other Mexican films. Um, It's a film, as I said, that's getting a lot of attention this uh, award season. It stars a largely unknown cast led by uh, Yelitsa Aparicio and Marina de Taviera. I'm just going to go with that. I probably butchered that, but what are you going to do? Podcast theme. Yeah, the plot summary on IMDb. A year in the life of a middle-class family's maid in Mexico City in the early 1970s. Uh, so like I said, this movie's at Netflix. It's right at your fingertips. Um, it's definitely, with Corone, it, it's one of those Artur type of artsy films, similar to Yorgo's The Favorite. Uh, that won't be for everyone, but I really think this one is not for everyone. Um, it, it starts, you know, it starts very slow. It's It's got lots of shots that linger on seemingly pointless scenes for a very long time. Uh, the movie's over two hours long. It's in black and white, and it's in Spanish. So uh, good luck selling that to the uh, casual film goer. Um, but it's on Netflix, so I wanted to mention it. It's right at the fingertips. Netflix is promoting it a lot, so people might be tempted to watch it. Um, and long story short, despite the things I just said, I would recommend watching it. Um, Like I said, it starts very slow. The credits are played over this shot at the very beginning of a drain where water is being splashed over it and there's a reflection of a plane in the water and it's just for like seriously 10 minutes water being splashed over a drain. Um, So you're like, what is going on here? What is happening? Yeah. Um, You know, it's a movie that is mostly just about the life of a live-in maid. um, And it really takes a solid hour and 20 minutes for something really exciting to happen. But I have to say, when it does, man, is it powerful. It hits you like a ton of bricks when this movie starts going. Um, it's, it's one of those movies that is set against a big historical event. In this case, uh, the political protests and riots that plagued Mexico City in the 1970s. Um, but it's a small story about a specific person. And I think Caron and the people who worked on this movie and the actresses really do well to provide a very intimate portrayal um, of what life maybe was like for this very specific person. So, have you heard anything about Roma? I've seen it on Netflix. Uh, I haven't actually seen the movie. It's it's popped up, you know, in in the popular what's you know what people are watching queue. Um, and it has, actually, it also is getting a little bit of uh, a little bit of screen time. I know one of the celebration cinemas, I think maybe Woodland, is actually showing it right now, despite it being on Netflix. Um, are you going to give away what the major event is that happens, you know, half hour into the movie? You know, I was debating that because it's on Netflix. It's so easily attainable. I think I'm not. I think I'm going to just save what the actual big twist is. But this movie just won two Golden Globes, uh, including uh, 
uh, Best Director for Alfonso Cuaron, um, and Best Picture for Foreign Language. It was now also nominated for Best Screenplay, so it's getting a lot of uh, love on that front. I love the camera work in this. It's incredible. There's lots of tracking shots where someone is um, sort of walking down the sidewalk in Mexico City or following them through a house or wading out in the ocean waves for a very powerful final scene. Uh, and that's actually the shot on the cover of the movie poster. It takes place as the final scene. And, it, and when that happens, there's sort of this sun peeking through. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, it, it seems like this movie has a lot of symbolism, particularly with water. Um, because that's what the movie starts and ends with, with shots of water. Um, but I have to be honest, I think it kind of went over my head. I was sitting there trying to figure out what is Corone trying to say here. Um, and and when, you, when that happens, sometimes you have to turn to the real experts. <laughs> yeah. In this case, it was Guillermo del Toro, who is obviously one of the greatest filmmakers working today. He's also uh, Mexican, I believe, so he, he, him and Corone know each other well. And I just happened to stumble upon a remarkable tweet thread of Guillermo del Toro talking about Roma. And I'm just going to read two of them because I think it, this tells you how brilliant people who are making auteurs who make these movies are. This is what uh, Guillermo del Toro tweeted. For me, the initial plane suggests that the earth, the infested floor of shit, and the sky, the plane, will always be far away, but the water reveals them and unites them briefly like a mirror. In Roma, Roma the truths are revealed by water. These planes of existence, such as the separation of classes in the house, cannot be settled easily. There will be times when the family approaches, but will be passengers, like, we save Cleo, or we are close, or we love the maid. And then those words will be immediately followed by, will you prepare me a banana smoothie? I think that it's very deep. It's a very deep movie by an artur. Uh, Guillermo Arturo is going to get it because he's, you know, a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, we're just, you know, we do this for fun. So <laughs> sometimes yeah. those things go over your head. Um... And I think it'll go overhead of being the most astute viewer. That's saying, if you watch it, if you get through it, if you get into it, I think you will start to appreciate it. It's a good movie. It's not going to be for everyone. I sat there and thought about my ranking for a while. Uh, I gave it a 7 on IMDb, but I would be closer to a 7 and 5 because it really is a powerful piece of art once you think about it as a whole. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't remember what I've talked about, what I referenced, but... Uh, what I look the power I think when a, with a film that takes its time is you don't feel like you're watching a movie. There's a certain amount of self awareness that we have when watching film, and when something goes out of the norm and is patient, you forget almost that it's a movie, and it almost feels more like a documentary. And we talked about this on a pod, and I can't remember the movie, but I remember thinking the Florida Man. Project is what yes. we talked about. This. You were, yeah, thank you. Yeah. And and the way that that film was shot, and the way that it was put together, and the time, and the patience, and the shots where you know the viewers are there, and they're there, but there doesn't seem to be much of a point, mm -hmm. but yet you're there for what they're doing. It makes it feel more real. Yeah. And it sounds like that this would achieve that big time. And I, from someone who loved the Florida Project, I can appreciate that. I could, you could compare it to the Florida Project. And like you said, it's almost like a fly on the wall glimpse of what's going on. You know, she'll, she'll come on screen and she'll be feeding the dog and she'll be washing the sidewalk. And then she'll go in and change the laundry. And then she'll walk in the house. And literally the camera will just stay in one spot on her doing her chores for 10 minutes. And it's because Caron's trying to really put you in this character's yeah. footsteps. So it's a movie where you have to be willing to put the phone away, 
spend two hours and 20 minutes really getting lost in the story. I think if you do that, you'll get the true power of it. Uh, honestly, I don't even think I did it because it, it's it's a slow build. It's in yeah. Spanish. You can't be looking at your phone when the movie's in Spanish because you're not just listening even. You can't. You don't know what's going on. you got to be reading. So maybe a tough sell, but if you're looking to have a really deep moving experience, check out Roma. It's on Netflix. Anyways, that's all we have for you today. We kind of chugged through a lot of stuff here yeah, uh, on the January 16th uh, episode of the SDFP, but lots of good stuff in theaters right now. There's stuff on Netflix to stream. Uh, Glass is coming out on Friday, the new M. Night Shyamalan film, so uh, that's a sequel to both Unbreakable and Split, so pretty excited to see it. Reviews, uh, you know, we try and avoid them, but the chatter's been mixed. Yeah, so hard, It's hard to avoid it sometimes. It'll be interesting to, to see what both of us think of Glass. So we'll want to review that soon. Uh, when the Oscars come up, we'll do an Oscar preview show. And I also plan to release a top 10 or top 25 pod uh, ranking my films from 2018. A couple more i got to see before I want to release that. But again, Evan, appreciate you joining me here today. We'll be back soon with another podcast. But until then, we'll see you at the movies.